Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I'm joined by Liz Lenevy and Megan Crow. We are continuing our discussion of appeals. We had our first episode last week where we discussed writs and brief writing and, most importantly, rule following. And this week, we want to talk about oral argument and also post-disposition motions. But oral argument, there's just so much that goes into it from prep and style and do you memorize and all those things. So we want to talk about some tips for that. I argued in front of the Missouri Supreme Court a few years ago, and I can't remember if someone recommended this book or if I just found it, but it's called Making Your Case, The Art of Persuading Judges. And it's written by Brian Garner, who's a longtime writer for the ABA Journal and just a guru of brief writing and oral argument and Justice Antonin Scalia. I would encourage anyone undertaking an oral argument from an appellate court to read a little, a few books here and there, or listen to some podcasts or blogs, because I just think you can't just all be about memorizing your brief. You have to understand this is persuasion, and we're all used to persuasion, but persuading a jury is different than persuading three or seven judges on the appellate level. I want to start with three tips. Judges can be persuaded only when three conditions are met. They must have a clear idea of what you're asking the court to do. Two, they must be assured that it's within the court's power to do it. And three, after hearing the reasons for doing what you're asking and the reasons for doing other things or doing nothing at all, they must conclude that what you're asking is the best, both in your case and in the cases that will follow. You accomplish that a lot of time in the brief. You have to have a clear idea of what you're asking the court to do. That should be reflected in your brief. The second one, it's within the court's discretion to do that. That's where you indicate you've preserved this for appeal. You discuss the standard of review. So they know they have authority to do what you're actually asking them to do. Those are kind of pillars. And then the third one is a little bit more of where the persuasion comes in. Because you have to assume that both sides have a good argument for maintaining or upholding the jury verdict, and then also for taking it away. So after hearing the reasons for doing what you're asking and the reasons for doing other things or doing nothing at all, the judges must conclude that what you're asking is the best, both for your case and, importantly, cases that follow. I have read many opinions where you feel like the court doesn't mind going away because it could be a very narrow ruling. And sometimes you'll read court opinions where they say, this is a very specific to this case. Really, it's limited to this set of facts. And I read that a lot and I'm kind of, I guess it depends on what the answer is, but sometimes I'm kind of disappointed because it really diminishes the precedential value to use for other cases. And so the goal would be to make sure the court understands that they can do this and not only for your case, but for a wide variety of cases. So when we're talking about oral argument, Liz, I know that you've done or arguments. Can you let us know what does your prep look like? It's been a while since I have had to do an oral argument in front of a court, and probably a lot of that is COVID-related. Without trials, we're not appealing anything. But my personal prep is to first, once I've already written the brief, 
I've submitted the brief. That's all done. Now I'm just relying on what I've written and just getting ready to do the actual arguing. And, and I'll say, and I've heard several judges say this before, it is very rare for you to change a judge's mind in your oral argument. The brief is the most important part of the appeals process. You need to make sure you have a strong brief. And really what oral argument oftentimes I think is used for is to maybe convince a judge who is more on the fence, if someone on the panel is on the fence, or to give additional facts that the judge can then rely on when they're writing the opinion. Keeping in mind that, you know, the pressure's on as far as being prepared and wanting to do a good job, but it really is not something that you're going to change the mind of anyone after you've already submitted your brief. So what I do, though, is I go back to my brief because I know that that is the most important part of the appeal. And I try to make sure that I've got all of the facts down. I need to make sure that I know every single fact in that case because the court might ask me. And even if it's not something that was an important part of my brief, maybe it's something the court wants to know whether this happened or what did the judge say in response to this question or whatever. So making sure that I have a really good working knowledge of what is in the facts. But then as far as the case law, because that's the other really important part of an appeal is you want to make sure that the court has good authority to rely on when they are going to be writing the opinion. You don't want them creating new law and they don't want to do that. So making sure that you understand all of the cases and what I do, because this is just how my brain works, is I create everything in graphs. I want to know what the case name is, when it was written, what court it came out of, and what the holding and the particular set of facts were in that case. Because what I'm trying to do is if I have really good case law, really strong opinions that are authoritative and that I can tell the court, look, you're not doing anything new or groundbreaking. This has already been decided. I want to make sure I know the facts of that case. So I have in my little graph a section where I have all the facts of that case written out and the ways that it is comparable to my case now. And if there's really bad case law that is the exact opposite of what I want, again, I'm going to go through, I want to know the name of the case. I want to know when it was written because how old it is can matter, what court it came out of. Obviously, if it was written by the same appellate court, if I'm in the Eastern District and it's another opinion by the Eastern District, I want to know that as opposed to if it's one of the other districts. Also, I want to know what the holding was and why that particular set of facts is different from what I'm doing now. So I have my graph and I have all of those different sort of headings. And that way I can quickly organize myself if I'm asked about that particular case. And it also serves as just sort of my study guide going into my oral argument. So I do all of that. The other thing I do, and this is something that I've learned over the years, doing moot court in law school and then going and doing my own arguments, is that you cannot go up to that podium with a ton of paper. And I used to make that mistake of, I'm going to take these really detailed notes and I'm going to be up there and I'm going to have everything. And you get up there and it's just a blur. So you need to have what I think is just sort of your your big cheat sheet where you have everything written out that is important, important enough to fit on one piece of paper. And really what I what I recall, and Megan, you can tell me if this is what they still teach at SLU, is actually having like a manila folder. Oh, they taught that oh, 25 yeah. years ago. Okay. Oh, that's, that's still going <laughs> it's strong. Still, it's still a thing. So you the have folder. your manila folder. So you just have one folder and it's got all of your notes in it, but it sort of forces you to condense all of that information it, into- Importantly, there's no paper in the yes. folder. You have the folder with 
things physically written on the folder. Correct. So you're not shuffling or anything like that. So you have your folder up there and you have all of your important points. And I still take my case law cheat sheet, my one little thing, because I know how important the case law is. But that's my process for preparing is I have my manila folder with my facts and whatever else I want to remember. And then my case law cheat sheet. Liz, what you said about your first point about knowing the case law that you're relying on, I think that's one of the biggest differences between trial practice and appellate practice, because as trial lawyers, often we are not used to having to memorize case law a lot, really the detailed facts of it. I mean, when you're writing, you'll read it and you'll use it in your brief and explain it a little bit, but very rarely will you be peppered with questions by a judge about the facts of case law that you're relying on. Occasionally in arguments for motions, you may give the judge a case, tell them the brief issue, but you don't have to know the case backwards and forwards like you do in appellate practice. You really have to know the facts of those cases as well as your own case. That's a really good point, Megan. The other thing to keep in mind between a trial court judge and an appellate bench is that the trial court judge may not have read that case yet. In fact, oftentimes what happens is the first time the judge is getting a chance to read the case is when I hand it to him or her while they're sitting on the bench. But when you go into an appellate argument, those judges already know those cases. They've already read them. They've read your briefs. They know what they say. So you're not teaching these judges anything new. And that's the really important part about just digging into that case law and making sure that you understand it is because you are going in front of a very knowledgeable panel. I've never had the opportunity to argue an appeal live, but I think if there was one takeaway that I had from moot court in law school, it was your oral argument is not your opportunity to explain your brief. It is to answer questions. You don't want to go up there and restate to the judges what they already know. They've read, they've prepared for this. You are just asking questions. You are taking it a step further and answering questions that they have after reading your brief or explaining a little bit further points that maybe you didn't have time to fully flesh out in your brief, you know, which is why it's important to be flexible in preparing for an oral argument because you don't know if you're going to have a lot of questions or if they're kind of waiting for you to just explain further. So you really have to be kind of on your toes, prepared for anything. I think that that's the biggest source of my stress when preparing for appeals is, am I going to have a hot bench or am I going to have a cold bench? <laughs> and I'll back up for anyone who may not understand my terminology there. Hot bench means those judges are peppering you with questions. Everyone's got questions and you have to answer them quickly and efficiently. And there's situations where you might be in the middle of an answer and another judge is going to pop in with a question. That's a hot bench. Cold bench is when they kind of just sit there and stare at you <laughs> and you have to go through your argument. And you might think that, well, I kind of hope I have a cold one because then I can prepare. I can sit down and I can just be ready with all of my arguments and I can almost sort of write out a script and follow that. And it is the exact opposite when you start to get into the practice of it, of you want a hot bench. You want them active. You want them interested. You want that conversation with the judge. And two, it makes the time go by so much faster. And I'm sure we're going to talk about time, but a hot bench is a much less awkward situation. I would rather, I think, have a hot bench and have questions to answer than just giving them, you know, a soliloquy. And as much as I'd rather prefer that, it also is more nerve-wracking because you are going through, what if they ask a question I don't know the answer to, which is why it's so important to leave yourself so much time to prepare for this. 84.12 of the Missouri rules are for oral argument, and it's the time for oral argument 
is set by the district of each court of appeals. So each court of appeals can decide how much time to give. And that time may be extended by the presiding judge to the extent the time taken by questions from the bench and answers thereto. So it's very discretionary. And if you're the appellant, the one filing the brief, much like being the plaintiff in a civil case, you get a rebuttal, you get to come back and you have to reserve that time. The appellant may divide the allotted time between the original and the reply argument but no more than one fourth of the time shall be consumed by the reply argument. So the reply argument, same thing as what I would consider rebuttal. So if you have an hour, which no one ever has an hour, but just for easy math, you can't have more than 15 minutes reserved for your reply argument. Another point is any party who does not file a brief or whose brief has been stricken may not be permitted to present oral arguments. So your brief has to be in good shape, has to be accepted before you're even going to get to do an oral argument. One of my appeals was in the Eighth Circuit. We had to go to St. Paul, one of the Eighth Circuit divisions, to argue that. Added a bit of stress because I wasn't familiar with the courthouse or the judges or pretty much anything. But it can be overcome. You just have to do a lot of research. And one of the things I would advise, and I'm sure we all would suggest to our listeners, is research your panel. What judges are on your panel? How do they typically react? Do they ask a lot of questions? You can find this information out, read some of their opinions. It's easier to do in your home jurisdiction because we're used to reading appellate opinions all the time and recognize the judges' names and might even see them at various bar events. But you really should go watch oral arguments in front of these judges, see how other practitioners do it. Just being in the courtroom, just like trying cases, watching things happen, seeing that they can be done, seeing how people react, how those judges pepper, as you say, with questions, it just brings down the stress to know what to expect. Did you argue that appeal up in Minnesota? Yes. This was a number of years ago. It was a product liability case we had filed in Minnesota. Our client was from Missouri, but the accident had happened in Minnesota. But that's how we got hired because the client was a Missouri resident. We had a question about the innocent seller statute. So in a product liability case, you can sue the manufacturer. In this case, it was a vehicle. And we sued the manufacturer of the vehicle, but also the dealership. And the legal principle is that if the only thing the seller ever did was take the car on the lot and then just sell it and didn't change the vehicle, didn't increase the risk of anything, just make money on it, then there are different rules in different states and different jurisdictions about whether you can continue to keep that defendant in the case, particularly if the main defendant, the manufacturing defendant, is solvent. So there was an issue under the law that got debated in that case. It actually didn't go our way. <laughs> Pretty much lost that. Made some bad law. Unfortunately, that's the worry, isn't it, with appealing cases? You always have to worry about whether you're going to make some bad law. It's one thing to lose a motion or an objection in the trial court that affects just, you know, a little bit of evidence. It's another thing to appeal that decision, have it reinforced by an appellate opinion, and now all of a sudden everybody's stuck with it. So I would encourage anybody and everybody who has the opportunity to appeal a case to really think about what the long-term effect is. What do y'all think about arguing or at least trying to get your argument out in front of colleagues. 
should you practice, I guess is the better way to put that. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And how you go about doing that? I think it's important that you ask your colleagues to not just watch you practice your oral argument, but to actually engage and read the cases beforehand and know the other side's argument, read the other side's brief so they can ask you hard questions and not just like softballs for you to do really well in your argument because you want to be prepared for the worst. So I think it's worth it to ask your colleagues to really engage in this issue and help you out by understanding the arguments and asking tough questions and thinking analytically what they would be curious about if they were a judge. The other thing too, we're obviously also busy. Sometimes it can be a big ask to try to wrangle a couple of other attorneys and say, hey, can you read 50 pages of briefing and (laughs) I don't know, a couple hundred pages of case law so you can be ready for this? What I think is the best use of everyone's time is to sucker a couple of your friends at work (laughs) into coming to a meeting and you tell them what your case is about and be honest with them about what are the weak points of your case and what is the bad case? Because you know it. It's not like this is going to come as a big surprise to you about what are the holes in your case. And so having sort of a meeting ahead of time telling them, like, this is what I know is the problem. And it can get you into that mindset of this is how I'm going to respond to these questions. Because I think the biggest thing, if you've never done an oral argument before, is that first time you get interrupted. Because you get up there and you say, may it please the court. And you start your argument and you've got it laid out. And, you know, what you want to do is at least have the first couple of sentences prepared. You don't want to sound too scripted, but you want to be prepared. And the first couple of sentences explaining, your honors, this is why the trial court got it right or this is why the trial court got it wrong. But the first time that you get interrupted, it could be mid-sentence. And it's always a little jarring whenever someone just sort of jumps in and cuts you off. And so you just have to be prepared for that and prepared to listen to the question, digest it quickly and have a response ready to go. Because that's the other thing. And I know it's funny. We talked about listening a couple episodes ago and how whenever you have a bit of a pause, that that's a sign that you're digesting the information and you're thinking about it. You don't want to have too much of a pause when you're doing your oral argument. You know, maybe give yourself a second or two, but you got to be ready for those questions. And honestly, if you have done the work in your brief and you have done the work in preparing for the argument, you know what questions are coming your way. You know what the tough questions are going to be, and you should have those answers ready to go. So that's how I think it's best to prepare with colleagues, though, is just telling them this is the important information you need to know. This is the important case law you need to know. These are the issues that I'm worried about. And just let me have it get up there and just cut me off, make it aggressive. I want the hottest bench possible. That way I'm ready for whatever happens when the real time comes. And when you're up there, I agree 100%. Don't bring a whole bunch of stuff. Take your folder or whatever is most comfortable. And I know that I start and I let my finger point to where I am on the outline because I know I'm going to get interrupted. At least you hope you're going to get interrupted. And then those questions are going to probably end. And then there's a pause at the end of that question. And you have to be ready to go back to where you left off. And if you can't remember where you left off, you might miss your most important point. So I try to physically put my finger where I was interrupted so I can remember where to pick up again after those questions are over. Or if you're a hand talker like me, I take a highlighter and I might just put a little dot. Where I left off. Right. Some kind of signal so you're not 
turning the page or like, where, where, where was I? I don't remember. And then you're kind of like, please ask me more questions because I have no idea what to say next. <laughs> I try to like visualize having a conversation with the judge on the dais, you know, because that's what it kind of ends up to be. Now, what do you think about repeating the question before you answer it? In other words, the judge says, now, Ms. Gunn, I noticed in your argument or in this case, the plaintiff said this. How does that fit into your argument? Do you think it's okay to repeat the question or should you just dive in? Because what I'm envisioning is I want to make sure I understand the question. Do you think it's okay to say, judge, if I understand you, you're asking blank? Or do you think that's rude? I believe if you're genuinely unsure, then ask for that clarification. Double check that you understand the question and that you're not going to waste what little time you have up there. If you're doing it maybe to buy yourself some time to think, <laughs> I think that's also all right. But if you're doing it after every question, at some point, I'm going to wonder if the court questions your own competence. Of right. Like, do you understand? Are you having trouble hearing us? Right. Like, what am I missing? I think in a lot of oral arguments that I've watched, I've watched a few in the Court of Appeals, and just a common question is, well, what about this case that's bad for you? And if it's something like that, I don't think it's appropriate to like ask them to clarify what they mean, because that's sort of one of those questions that you should absolutely already have an answer ready to go to. So it's, if it's something like that, that you can anticipate coming, then I don't necessarily think it's the most appropriate way to go about it. But if it's something that is ambiguous or you're confusing to you or you really feels off base, then I don't think that it would be offensive to ask if you're understanding it correctly. What if the question is a very straightforward yes or no question, but you knew this question was coming and the answer could be problematic? Do you say yes or no? Do you say yes, period? Do you say no, period? Do you say yes, but? I think it's always important to answer the court honestly, even if it's bad for you. But like we talked about in the legal research episode, you don't want to give the partner a bad answer or a negative answer with no solution. So you want to tell the court, this is not in our favor, but here's why it's distinguishable. Or this is the other case that I would say is more analogous to our case here. I agree. I think you need to answer that question. Do not avoid the question. They know the answer to the question. <laughs> So you should answer the question, but immediately take the opportunity to distinguish or explain. I suspect the judge will let you because that's probably why they're asking. Seems like this case is a problem for you. Do you agree? Yes. But let me explain why we can get past it or something to that effect. Because I don't think you want to say, no, that's no problem at all. I don't know what you're talking about. These judges, as we said before, they're asking questions based on having read the briefs knowing the law, they're really not seeking a whole lot of new information. <laughs> this conversation about asking questions also just reminds me again, the point we've made before, that it's important to be flexible because if you get a question from a judge, that's maybe a point that you had in your mind or in your outline on your folder, anticipated you know, arguing last, and the judge asked about it right off the bat, I think it's important to be flexible to then naturally lead answering that question into your conversation about this other point that you were maybe going to discuss later and be ready to rearrange your argument as the natural course of question and answer and discussion with the judges kind of flows. If I'm remembering correctly, it's sort of described as like a roadmap. 
you want to roadmap your argument. And that can be part of the initial couple of sentences you have prepped when you get up there and start your argument. At least I was taught that you can go into and explain it to the court. I'm going to start with point two in my brief, and then I'm going to work into point three and four. And this is why, whether the trial court was wrong or right, and you want the reversal or you want it affirmed, at least having some sort of roadmap to your argument. And then that way, if it does get thrown off and you get thrown to a point that you didn't plan on addressing until the end, which let's be frank, you're probably not even going to get to the end of your argument if you're doing it right. You need to be able to quickly get back into wherever you wanted to go. And sometimes it may lead you naturally into a different area. The one thing, though, that, Amy, your question kind of made me think about is, you know, how do you respond to questions? And something that I was taught and that I try to remember whenever I give an oral argument, two responses not to start with. And the first one is don't start with I think or I believe. The court does not care what you think or you believe. The court wants to know what the laws are and wants to know what the facts are, and you need to state it definitively. And the second is don't respond with great question, judge. The judge (laughs) knows it's a great question. They don't need your affirmation. One thing that occurs to me is If the judge is asking questions and you're in the middle of your answer and the judge interrupts you, even though you're answering that judge's question, what should you do? Shut up and listen. (laughs) Yeah. Follow up on the newest question asked. I mean, stop talking immediately, right? Yeah. Even though what you're getting ready to say is the most important thing that you've ever said and it's going to turn this case, stop talking immediately. Stop talking, answer the question, and then say, and just quickly, I want to make sure I get this point from a prior question, and then get it in there. But definitely don't talk over the judge. Don't tell the judge, I'm almost done. Just one more second. Yeah. Yeah. I'm almost there. Don't do that. (laughs) And I also don't think it would be a good idea to say, well, I'll get to that in a second, but... You know, this is what I was saying initially. I think it's important to follow up on their most recent question asked first before you jump back to whatever you were talking about last. Correct. Some of us, me, deal with some nervous situations occasionally with humor. Try to be jokey, jokey or cute or funny. Good idea in this kind of setting? You know, I think you got to read the room. (laughs) Time and place. Yeah, time and place. And use it sparingly if it's something that you think you can get in there. Yeah. I think the judges appreciate a little bit of levity every now and then, though. I think it has to be unscripted. And I mean, I'm saying, you know, start out with a joke. (laughs) This is definitely not your chance to practice your stand up. I know. And I think I'm kind of imagining a situation where the judge may open the door to that by like, saying something that's a little playful or something a little sarcastic. And if it's a situation where it would be appropriate to respond in the same like playful nature to that, then yes. But if it is a very serious thing and you're trying to lighten the mood by saying a joke, (laughs) I don't think that's the best idea. idea. I mean, I get into trouble because I wink at people in an acknowledgement. I do it all the time. I can't really help myself. And so I I'm sure that I've done this, an argument, maybe we're so far away from the bench, no one ever quite notices. But if someone, you know, if it becomes a conversation and there's any levity whatsoever, I'm sure that I would like smile and wink. And I like, I have to be very, so you got to know yourself and what your nervous habits are or how you react in situations, what your tics are and that kind of thing. And I think it's important for people to watch And not only to hit you with those questions, but also watch your demeanor. Maybe you videotape yourself. Because most of the things that we do, I don't think we even notice that we're doing them. 
after two years of Zoom hearings right. and watching myself on Zoom hearings, I realize I have a much more expressive face than I realize. That is something I think that is good that has come out of this is I have been much more active about working on my facial reactions in particular, not so much when the judge talks. I'm much better about poker face when the judge talks, but sometimes when opposing counsel says something, I know I'm reacting. And so that's something I've had to work on is facial reactions. But also for me, again, I think I mentioned this earlier, I'm a hand talker. When I get excited, when I am focused and I'm talking and I'm engaged in a conversation, my hands start going. And I don't want to look like a crazy lady up there. <laughs> and so luckily, whenever you do an oral argument, you are in front of a podium. And so I... It's kind of weird, but I will sort of grip the sides of the podium <laughs> like I'm Same. afraid I'm going to like fall over. But at least it forces me to not use my hands so much when I talk. I'll let it go every now and then if I'm making a really important point and I want to add a little bit of a flourish to what I'm saying. But you can't be up there for 15 minutes with your hands flying everywhere. You don't want to be that person. So if you're like me in that regard, just find something and occupy your hands. You know, if it's a pen or something, but don't click the pen. <laughs> don't take a clicky pen. Yeah. Just find a way to preoccupy your hands so that the judges aren't distracted by whatever you're doing with your body language and they can focus on what you're actually saying. In addition to not being distracting to the judges when you're talking with your hands, it can also, if you mind where your hands are and hold onto the podium and use hand gestures sparingly, it can also kind of help you prove a point of like this one time that I'm doing this like kind of emphasis with my hands is demonstrating and signaling to the panel that this is the important point. And because you're confined to a podium, it can kind of help you demonstrate your point in the way that we as trial lawyers are used to doing more so in trial court where it's more of a performance and it kind of adds that element of performance when you can use it sparingly. If it's really a question, you just don't know the answer. It's just out of nowhere. It may not have anything to do with the case. It might be a crazy question. Is it okay to say that you don't know? I don't like to say I don't know. I almost prefer to say instead of I don't know, I like to say I'm not sure. But and then maybe I can try to segue it into something I am sure about. Saying I don't know feels so definitive of my head is empty and I got nothing for you. Yeah. But saying I'm unsure, it indicates to the court that you are, you're not saying anything with 100% definition here because you're not entirely sure. But here's something that I can tell you with some confidence. I remember learning about how to deal with this issue in moot court. And I think what the answer is, is to eloquently signal if you think it's out of nowhere and it's really not what your oral argument, your appeal, your issue is about, to gently and eloquently explain to the court why that's not necessarily what your argument is relying upon. And then also simultaneously indicate that you're not sure, like as Liz said, but if you need to submit supplemental briefing on that issue, you exactly. can. So that is one of the points. It's okay to say, I'm sorry, Yana, I just don't know the answer, but I can provide that information to you in a supplemental brief if you wish or something like that. So here's a quote from William Boyce. If you don't know the answer, admit it. The penalty for not having an answer at your fingertips is less severe than the penalty for trying to fake it, getting caught, and giving the court an opportunity to bat you around like a cat playing with a ball of yarn. Oh, <laughs> 
So I'm thinking, you know, if you truly don't know, I think it is okay to say, I'm not sure, but I agree with both of you. You can't just say, I don't know, period. Right. So when your time is up, you are normally given signals, green, five minutes left, yellow, two or one, none, whatever it is for that particular courtroom. When the signal turns red, what you should you do? I was always taught to end in the nearest sentence or maybe one additional sentence. And then if you really have something else that you want to say to wrap up, then I was told it's okay to say, may I briefly conclude, Your Honors? Same. I was taught to say, I see my time is up. And it just indicates to the court that you are paying attention, but you follow it up with, may I have a brief moment to finish my thoughts and finish whatever you're thinking, whatever your thoughts were. Sort of going back to what I talked about earlier, where you want to have a few lines written out, have at least one conclusory sentence, have it prepared, ready to go in your pocket. Even if you time it perfectly, you want to be able to just finish on that last sentence to just remind the court of whatever it is that you're asking. And kind of goes back to what you talked about at the beginning, Amy, what it is that you're asking, why the court has the authority to do it, and why the court should do it. And then wrap it up and then sit down and pray. (laughs) Just be relieved. (laughs) All right. So then you get the opinion. 8417, 84.17 Missouri rules, post disposition motions. And you can ask for an application to transfer to the Missouri Supreme Court under Rule 83, but you also may file post-disposition motions of three types. Number one is a motion for rehearing. And this is to call attention to material matters of fact or law that were overlooked or misinterpreted by the court. So that one, I'd say you can't just say you got it wrong. Okay. So this might be if there's been some new developments, some new case law, something like that. The second one is a motion to modify. And this really is to correct an error of law or fact that does not affect the disposition of the case, but you want a clean opinion. Maybe they got a a year wrong or a date wrong or something like that. And then the third is the motion to publish an opinion. Every opinion that is issued is not automatically published. So you can certainly ask for the opinion to be published. And you have to explain why the court's disposition of the appeal has precedential value. Why do you want it published? This is purely out of my own curiosity, but do you have to do that for cases to get published or can courts do that on their own? Some cases are published and sometimes they issue a non-published opinion. And I'm not sure why they would under certain circumstances, but sometimes you get an opinion and it's a non-published opinion. And if that's the case, then you can ask for it to be published if you can explain why it has precedential value. So those are the things that you can do, or you can just be done. You can just be done. <laughs> Have another cocktail. For example, if you lose a trial and then you lose the appeal, it's okay just to be done. It's a hard day, but sometimes you got to turn that page. Or the opposite is you win a trial, you win on the appeal, and then you say, send me my money. No more delay. Pay this judgment. Let's be done with it. So many things can happen. So thank you so much, ladies, for an informative discussion about oral arguments. Be sure to check back in our last episode about briefs and writs. Please join us next week for another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Thank you. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. 
Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today.